I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 1. I'd like to remind us of why we are here this morning. We are not here primarily to learn more facts or to get something. We're not here to maintain a good tradition or because it's Sunday morning and it's time to go to church. We're not here for any selfish objective. We are here to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and to behold him, to be occupied with the wonder of his person and those many accomplishments that he has made on our behalf. We are here to fellowship with him. It's true we are here together, one with the other, but that's secondary. We are here primarily to meet with the Lord. In Revelation chapter 1, we have the beginning of one of the great prophetic portions of Scripture. In fact, it's sometimes referred to as the crown jewel of Bible prophecy, and it is that. In some ways, it's a sequel to the book of Daniel and to many of the Old Testament prophecies in Ezekiel and again in in Malachi and Zechariah. In Revelation chapter 1, we have the beginning of this great book. And the beginning, of course, sets the tone. It's the foundation on which the rest of it will come. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now notice the order, the chain of command here. Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. That's the first of seven beatitudes that are found in this book. Notice the conditions upon which that beatitude is operative. Then, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, 
unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. You ever turn to see a voice? What color is a voice? What does a voice look like? He turned to see the voice, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last." I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels, or messengers, of the seven churches, And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Let's bow together and ask God to guide us. Our Father, we believe that we have just read words that are God-breathed, written for our learning and profit, and that not only the gist of what was read, but the details, the very syllables, the punctuation is written and are written for our learning and profit. May your Spirit grant us that illumination that your truth would become increasingly our truth. And may you instill within us a great desire to know you better and to make you known to a world that desperately needs hope and direction. We pray that you will keep us in these moments together from error, keep us focused in our hearts and minds, And may your purpose in our attention to this portion of Scripture be realized. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation is a fascinating book. There are so many memories that come back to mind each time I read through this portion. Through all 404 verses in these 22 chapters. What an amazing thing that in this revelation... God is revealing to us something of the person of the Lord Jesus. Why do we worship him? Why do we praise him? Why do we sing, Come thou fount of every blessing? It is because of the greatness of who he is. Greatness, that word doesn't do justice to the thought, but perhaps it ventures a little bit in that direction. Here we see in this chapter the greatness of his person, We see something unfolding in verse 19 of his program, his plan for the ages to come, things that he has seen, that John has seen, things that are, and things which shall be in the future. It's one of the the little books, one of the books of Scripture that give us an outline for the whole book, 
in verse 19 of chapter 1. He also reveals a little bit about what the tribulation will be like in this book, starting really, starting in chapter 4 with the rapture and running all the way through to the revelation of Jesus in chapter 19 as he returns back to the earth. And it's touched on here where every eye will see him or shall see him, and they also which pierced him. That's not the rapture. That's the revelation. In the rapture, it's in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But at his revelation, every eye will see him. In this portion of Scripture, we have God's interest and his his involvement in the life of one individual, the Apostle John. So it covers a wide range from things that were, that are, and that will be, things that span time and venture into the eternal state in chapters 21 and 22. But it also is simple enough to address one man, the fact that on the Lord's day he was found in the Spirit, governed, directed, managed by the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation really is a sequel to the book of Genesis. And I say that because if in Genesis we have the seed plot of all Bible doctrine, in Revelation we have the terminus of all Bible doctrine. All major Bible doctrines are addressed in this this book of Revelation. It's a very significant thing to realize that, that God has been talking about doctrine from the very beginning to the very end. It's important to him, and it should be important to us as we seek to live that out. Now notice in verse 19 in particular where he says, Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. That's a very significant word, hereafter. It actually comes from two Greek words, metatoto. And the significance of that is that when the times of the church have ended, then the rest of God's program will begin, the clock will begin to tick for it. So right after the rapture, all that takes place will take place very quickly. Things which must shortly come to pass. doesn't mean it's going to happen in five minutes from when John was writing, or even five months or five years. But what he is saying is that when these events begin to unfold, they will unfold very, very quickly. So we have basically chapters 4 through 19 all taking place within a seven-year time span in the future. The book of Revelation is avoided by many. Shouldn't be, but it is. It's looked at with some degree of contempt because it's said to be so complicated we can't possibly understand it. It is as God breathed as all the rest of Scripture and should be recognized and appreciated as such. It's rejected by many. And I don't mean just raving liberals. But even within the so-called evangelical community, there are prominent individuals today who discredit the book of Revelation as not being inspired, not being being God-breathed. This is a portion of Scripture that gives us just reason to worship, to adore, to focus upon the Lord Jesus and to sit at his feet and behold him. Now, in verses 1 to 3, I'd like you to notice the introduction to this book. This is really a unique portion of Scripture. 
It is true, there is symbolism found in, in other portions of Scripture, like Ezekiel, for example, and Daniel. But this is a unique portion of Scripture in its symbolism. And the answer to its symbolism will also be found in Scripture. What do the symbols mean? Well, we simply need to look into the Bible to find what they mean. In verse 1, I'd like you to notice the ownership of this revelation. The ownership. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, just in case somebody asks you this afternoon and threatens your life if you can't give the answer, the significance of this is it is a subjective genitive. Now, what does that mean? That he owns this message. Now, that probably isn't going to happen. Nobody's going to threaten your life this afternoon on this, but I hope they won't. But it is a subjective genitive in that it means it, it, it belongs to him. But he's saying that the subject matter is also him. So he's owning this. It's a message, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he uses those two terms. Jesus being Jehovah saves and Christ the anointed one, the Messiah. Then in the second part of verse 1 and 2, there is the origin of this message. He says, which God gave to him. What does that mean? That he didn't have it before? No. The Son is as all-knowing, all-powerful, who spans all of eternity, just like the Father. But we find the answer to this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, where it is in the Father's prerogative to make known through the Son the future. Acts chapter 1 verse 7 reveals that to us. So it is the Father giving to the Son the green light, so to speak, to go ahead and make this portion of Revelation known to its readership. And in that, I see a picture of harmony, of unity, of mutual cooperation between the persons of the Godhead. And that should be the model for us, to work together in harmony, in respect, in esteem, in loving kindness, in a sense of mutual submission and yet a recognition of authority, mutual authority. And that, folks, is a rare gem today that is seldom found. Now, when we consider the origin of this message, it was given by the Father to the Son to give to his angel, to give to John, to give to the seven churches of Asia, and to you and to me today. So the chain of command, the Father, to the Son, to the angel, to John, to the churches, and to us. The origin goes back to God. Now in verse 3, I've seen an offer of blessing. There's a promise here. There's the ownership in verse 1, and the origin of the message, verses 1b and 2, and then the offer of blessing in verse 3. And that, that blessing is offered to those who read and hear and keep. So it's a threefold step here, jumping up three stairs all in one leap. Hearing and reading and keeping what is to be unfolded in this book. And then he reminds us that the time of these events is at hand. 
And he's reminding us in that that Jesus could, in fact, return imminently. The Bible does teach the imminent return of Jesus, that he could come at any moment. So if we have an introduction in the first three verses, I'd like you to notice the identity of Jesus in verses 4 down through 9. And in verse 4, I see a commendation where he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace. He is commending grace and peace. Grace in the heart will show itself through grace in the life. Did these churches face challenges? Yes, they did. Internal challenges? Yes. External challenges? Yes. Challenges that related to difficult people? Yes. To sinful people? To doctrinal issues? Yes, in every case. Did they need grace? Yes, they did. Is there ever a time when we can come to a point in our life and say, I have enough grace. I don't need to be any more gracious than I am right now. I don't need any greater experience of God's grace in my heart and mind, my actions, my attitudes, my relationships. That will never be in this life. And so he commends grace to them. And it's followed by peace. If there is a lack of peace, it is because there is a deficiency of grace. And that is as true today as when John wrote this. Now, you may notice the source of this commendation. It is from Jesus in verse 1. It is from the Father, verses 4 and through 8. And it is from the seven spirits before the throne. Now, that seven spirits isn't talking about seven angels or seven spirit creatures of some kind. That is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because of what we read in Isaiah chapter 11 and in verse 2. In fact, he uses this term repeatedly in the book of Revelation, the sevenfold Holy Spirit being the seven spirits of God. I'd like you to notice also the, not only the commendation, but the character of Jesus. John was in Jesus' presence on the Lord's Day. Now, I'm sure that was true every day. But in a special way of concentrated, deliberate fellowship, it was Jesus who was filling John's heart and his mind. When I was writing this message, I wrote this, that it was Jesus who was filling his pen because he was writing that which Jesus had given to him. So John wrote, conscious of being in the presence of Jesus. How does Jesus reveal himself here? He is the faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, that means that he is no one less than Jehovah God. Because if we had lots of time, we could go back into Jeremiah 42 and verse 5, where Jehovah is described as the faithful and true witness. And that term is applied to Jesus himself here. He's the faithful witness. How do we understand that? Well, if we went back to Genesis 3.15, we would find that the promise of the Messiah was called the seed of the woman. And Jesus fulfilled that. As we know from Isaiah 7 and verse 14 and John 
or, or Matthew, rather, chapter 1 in verses 16 and 18, and Luke chapter 2, and so on. He was the faithful witness in that he was crucified, just as Psalm 22 promised he would be. They pierced my hands and my feet. Just as he rose from the dead, he was being faithful to what was found in Psalm 16 in verse 10, that he would rise from the dead. That he would, in fact, be, in Isaiah 9, 6, the son that was given, the child that was born. He was given as the eternal son, and yet he was born as a little baby. He was faithful in that he came to the place that Micah prophesied he would about 700 years before the event, that he would come to the southern Bethlehem, not the one in the land of Zebulun, but in the south, just exactly as Scripture promised. He was faithful, the faithful witness. In his lifetime, we, we read from John eight twenty nine that he did always those things that please the Father. He was faithful in his person and in his work. He was faithful in all of his performance, in all that he did. He was faithful to his people, diligent in doing that which was right and pleasing in God's sight. He is further described in verse 5 as the first begotten of the dead. What does that mean? First begotten is the term prototokos, and it means this, that he was the preeminent one. He, didn't, he wasn't the first one to rise from the dead. Didn't he raise Lazarus? Yes. Jairus' son? Jairus' daughter, rather? The widow of Nain's son? Yes. What about the widow of Zarephath's son back in the Old Testament? Or the man that touched Elisha's bones and came to life again. But he was the preeminent one. He was the first rank. He was the first of the church. He was the head of the church. He's the first begotten from the dead. In the second part of verse 5, he is the prince of the kings of the earth. The prince of the kings of the earth. He's the master administrator. We know from Zechariah 14 in verse 9 that he will one day be king over all the earth. And that's why perhaps John identifies him here as the prince of the kings of all the earth. The last part of verse 5 and verse 6, and you may notice in your text that Jesus is him that loved us. Well, it's good to know that he's the faithful witness, but that's not overly endearing. He's the first begotten of the dead, and that's overwhelming, but it's not overly endearing. And yet we come to this, that he is him that loved us. Us, John. He had been a son of thunder, which suggests he was some kind of a rambunctious character. A son of thunder doesn't mean he was a passive, quiet little guy that sat in a corner and read big, thick books all day long. He was probably with a very boisterous personality. And yet we know him today as the apostle of love. Him that loved us, of all the things that John could have said, he was inspired to write this, him that loved us, with a love that accepted him, in spite of all of his past, all of his failures, a love that embraced him 
a love that was willing to go to the cross in John's place and bear that judgment that would have put him, put us in hell for eternity. It's very interesting to realize that in the Song of Solomon, while we have a marriage manual, we also have a picture of Christ and the church, the heavenly bridegroom and the earthly bride. Just keep your finger here in Revelation 1 and go back with me to the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. The very last chapter of the Song of Solomon. And here the bride is speaking, and she says, Make haste, my beloved. And be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. What is she saying? She's saying, please come. Come quickly. Make haste. And then she uses a a term of endearment. My beloved. There is a holy possessiveness. That's the last word from the bride in the Song of Solomon. But now going back to Revelation, let's go back to chapter 22 just for a moment. And we see the response of the heavenly groom in verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. She is saying, Make haste. And he's saying, Yes, I'm coming quickly. John was conscious of the love that the Lord had for him. And he sums it up and reminds us that he has washed us, that Jesus has washed us from our sins in his own blood. Quite a thing to take a little bit of water and nice warm soapy cloth and wash some little child's scraped knee as they've fallen on the driveway. It's a kind act. But what kind of an act would it be to wash somebody in your own blood? Blood that was poured out in death. Here is a statement of tremendous commitment. Pouring out his life, washing from washing us from our sin in his blood. Notice the power of that blood to remove sin. That blood did what all of humanity could never do, even if it wanted to. And then he has reminded us that he's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now you are a king. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, you are a king in God's sight. And you are a priest. Now, don't let that go to your head. But the fact is, you are a king and you are a priest. I would not suggest that, especially you young ladies, write home and and tell your friends that you are now a priest. They will not understand that. But it doesn't change that reality, that we are, in fact, kings and priests in God's sight. Further, in describing the character of Jesus, in verse 7, he is the one who is coming. He is the ever-coming one, coming in the Christophanies, coming in Old Testament revelation, coming to Bethlehem, coming at the rapture, coming at his revelation. He's the ever-coming one. He's also, in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. He says, I am, and he uses that that Old Testament designation that goes back to Exodus 3.14. He is the I am. I am the Alpha and Omega. 
first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the communicator. He is the beginning and the end, the source of revelation, the source of truth. He is also the beginning and the end in the second part of verse 8, that all things relate to him, all of the facets of life, all of the challenges that we endure, all are related to him, the beginning and the ending of all reality. In verse 8, in the last part of verse 8, he describes himself as he that who was, or, or is rather, which was and which is to come. That was a descriptive of God the Father in verse 4. And that shows us the commonality of essence between both the Father and the Son, and it could also be said of the Holy Spirit. He is further described in verse 8 as the Almighty. Now that's a term that is used eight times here in the book of Revelation. The Almighty. It's used 31 times in the book of Job. More in Job than anywhere else in the entire scriptures. It's interesting that the term Almighty is used in the light of human suffering. Job's suffering and suffering that will be endured in the time of the tribulation. He's the Almighty. Does that mean he's just boundless in power? Well, yes, that's true. But what he is saying here is that he is one who nourishes by giving of himself, one who cares and pours out himself for the well-being of another. And that's the thought that is conveyed here in Revelation 1, in the use of the term here. The term is used also of, of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. And also in the same chapter, he uses the, the descriptive of a loving father caring for his children. Just as a mother nurses and cares for her baby, so God cares for his own. Well, we might talk about the introduction, and we might talk about the, the identity of Jesus. But starting in verse 10, we see something of inspiration from Jesus. In verses 10 and the first part of verse 11, there's the voice. John heard a voice on the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? It's not the day to get caught up on all the jobs that didn't get done on the first six days of the week. It's not the day just as a day of rest. It is a day of spiritual exercise. And that is modeled for us right here in the book of Revelation chapter 1. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And in that state he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. And that voice was self-identifying. I am the Alpha and Omega. And then he's been given a vision. He is seeing seven churches of Asia, seven golden candlesticks, golden candlesticks, not, not plastic, not tin, not some kind of cardboard, but golden candlesticks. First thing that Jesus wanted John to see was the church. How important that is in his mind, in Jesus' mind. 
and how important it should be in our mind. He saw seven churches, and he saw Jesus standing, symbolizing incomplete work. There is work to be done in the church, in the churches. And Jesus was seen standing, not on the periphery, but in the midst of the churches. What is his rightful place in the church? Front and center. In the midst of the church. And any church that has Jesus on the periphery is a defective church. We do well to recognize that we gather to him and not just that he comes to pat us on the head and say something nice to us or to give us warm, fuzzy feelings. But he has come to take over, to be central. He saw Jesus resurrected, alive forevermore, and holding the keys of hell and of death in a position of authority. And then he saw something else. He saw Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand. The chapter that we've read already defined those seven stars as the seven messengers, probably the pastors of the churches. And they were held in Jesus' right hand. The significance of the right hand is a position of power, of authority, of acceptance. I think it is true to say that it is more difficult to pastor churches today than it was 25 years ago. And if time goes on, it will probably continue to become increasingly difficult to provide spiritual leadership for local churches, for local fellowships of God's people, for assemblies where Jesus is supposed to be central. But those messengers, in spite of the difficulties that they faced, were held in Jesus' right hands. So while you fellows may look at the difficulties of full-time pastoral or missionary service, don't forget who holds you and whose hand is basically providing you with all that you need as you face the challenges that will inevitably come. And very quickly, I'd like you to notice the image of Jesus, how he describes his person, clothed with a long garment down to his feet, What he's doing here is painting a picture of the Old Testament high priest going back into Exodus chapter 28. And he's putting a picture here of the the ephod or the robe that the high priest wore. Why is he doing that? Because he, Jesus, is our great high priest. And he wants us to see that. And we are believer priests under his authority. Secondly, he describes him as wearing a golden belt across his chest, covering his heart. The Old Testament priest had a a sash or belt that crossed his chest over his heart, and it was marked with gold and purple, demonstrating royalty. It was marked with scarlet, evidencing, evidencing servanthood. And it was also blue, symbolizing heaven. But Jesus, as he's standing here in the midst of the churches, his sash is totally gold, demonstrating the totality of his deity, his being, and so on. And it's next to his heart as our great high priest. His head and his hair is white like wool, white like snow, 
symbolizing purity and his identification with creation, white like wool. His eyes were as a flame of fire, seeing everything, penetrating into the reason why we are why we are what we are. The inner recesses of what makes us tick, the motivation, the intent, and all of those things that, that make us as unique individuals. Eyes as a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if they were glowing in a fire. The symbolism here is of strength, of unyielding justice and judgment. His voice is the sound of many waters. As I was preparing for this, I was remembering standing by a railing at Niagara Falls, just watching the water go over. Tremendous power, diligence, faithfulness. Every time I've been there, it's been the same. Water flowing over those rocks. Sound of many waters, <clears throat> power, faithfulness. In his, <clears throat> he held seven stars in his right hand. He, he is in the business <clears throat> of security, of acceptance, of protection. And he had a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth to convict, to defend, to defeat his enemies. The sword was his sword and it proceeded from his mouth. And the Bible tells us here that his face shone like the brilliant sun, that face that was once spit upon, that face that had the whiskers pulled out, that was beaten, was now shining like the radiant sun, showing his personal glory. What was John's response to say, hey, look, <clears throat> I've had an experience I am greater than all you poor peasants who haven't had that experience. I am really important. The focus was not on himself. But rather he fell on his face as if he were dead, powerless, in absolute humility before this one that he met in this way. And what was Jesus' response? If John fell on his face as if dead, how did Jesus respond? He came and he put his right hand on John, and he spoke to him, and he said, Fear not. And that's a word for us to fear not as we recognize who our Savior really is. We can say that on that occasion at least, that Jesus filled John's vision. Let's sing together, Be Thou My Vision. <clears throat>